The opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. Reading Stuart Brown's excellent book, Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination and Invigorates the Soul, this was a statement that resonated deeply with me. Quote, The opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. End quote. Hey, it's Che, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Welcome back and thank you for listening to Roleplay Rescue. This season we're working towards creating an anxious gamer's guide to role-playing games and seeking to reduce the stress, worry and heartache that so often seems to accompany something that feels like it should be more fun than it is. In his book, Play, Brown asserts that the reason we are doing an activity defines whether or not it is play. His example, some runners run to get fit, but others run because they enjoy being in the outside, smelling the trees, and feeling the miles roll under their feet. While he's reluctant to define play too closely, he acknowledges that play is generally something that has no immediately apparent purpose. In other words, we play because it's enjoyable and for its own sake. This pairing of ideas helped me to realise that some of my games are not playful. For example, my Mr. Mere game has become increasingly difficult to continue and I realised that one reason might be because we are playtesting rules, an activity with a specific non-play goal, not playing for the sake of playing, playing to test. In contrast, my Horaeth open table has proven immensely enjoyable over the past week or two because I'm playing it in a completely different spirit. I feel it's important to recognise the times when we are engaging in non-play. Motive and purpose lie behind this distinction and have profound effects on the impact that our gaming has upon us psychologically. When I play spontaneously and because it's fun, then I'm going to get a different result to when I play with the express intention of achieving a specific end. While that seems obvious in hindsight, I find the insight useful. I immediately knew how to fix the games in which I'm struggling to find joy. The trick, it seems, is to focus on the play and making the whole thing more playful. You do that by removing ulterior motives. Coming back to the opening quotation from Brown's book, the science suggests that when we fail to find moments of play in our lives, we are setting ourselves up for a delve into depression. In response, I found that simply engaging in something playful before I ended my day, however small or brief, was enormously energising the next day. And that is something I chose to experiment with further. This is Season 11, Episode 2, Being More Playful. What is play? 
Stuart Brown has spent a career studying play, communicating the science of play to the public and consulting for 1,500 companies on how to incorporate it into business. He has used play therapies to help people who are clinically depressed. He frequently talks with groups of parents who inevitably are concerned and conflicted about what constitutes healthy play for their kids. Brown has gathered and analysed thousands of case studies that he calls play histories. Quote, I have found that remembering what play is all about and making it part of our daily lives are probably the most important factors in being a fulfilled human being. The ability to play is critical not only to being happy, but also to sustaining social relationships and being a creative, innovative person. End quote. Play is an amorphous thing. As an expert on play, Brown is hesitant to define it because defining it always seems to somehow miss the point. But under pressure from what he describes as the engineer types, he lists several qualities that define play. Quote, Properties of play. Apparently purposeless. Done for its own sake. Voluntary. Inherent attraction. Freedom from time. Diminished consciousness of self, improvisational potential, continuation desire. End quote. In other words, play is not productive in the usual sense of the word. We do it because we choose to, not because we have to. Play is, in and of itself, attractive and appealing, making us want to take part. We experience a sense of timelessness while we play, sometimes referred to as flow. We lose much of our sense of self and consciousness about what we are doing. Play is, to some degree, improvised, not being entirely scripted. And play makes us want to play again. The point on that list which most deeply affected me as an anxious GM was the diminished consciousness of self. Striking a clear opposition to my social anxiety, this quality is the largest factor in my personal failure to play. I am too self-conscious. This is very closely related to the experience of losing or being too deeply aware of time. Anxiety projects me out of the present moment, wherein I might be free to play, and it places me instead in the future or traps me in the past. Worrying about what people will think of the game or ruminating on what they might have thought about the last session poisons my play. Quote, play provides freedom from time when we are fully engaged in play, we lose a sense of the passage of time. We also experience diminished consciousness of self. We stop worrying about whether we look good or awkward, smart or stupid. We stop thinking about the fact that we are thinking. In imaginative play, we can even be a different self. We are fully in the moment, in the zone. We are experiencing flow. End quote. But the other properties of play are vital as we seek to overcome anxiety at the table. We can't be coming to the game with a purpose, testing out a new set of rules, for example. It's not playful because it's a process of evaluation. When I play a one-shot to see what a new game feels like, that is subtly different to playing to see how effective the rules are in a particular situation. Running a game to impress is not the same than playing the game. That's why promo play of Warhammer 40k was never much fun when I worked for Games Workshop, for example, and it's why so many convention games lack a certain quality of playfulness when they are more about marketing than playing. The other big point I wanted to emphasise, largely because I feel that play 
being voluntary, being attractive in and of itself, and being something we want to come back to are all self-evidently true. It's, it's the one about play having improvisational potential. Too rigid a game is not playful. As a medium, role-playing games must be one of the most improvisational forms of all tabletop games. It's baked right into the concept. You improvise a role, a situation is presented and you improvise a response. Interactions are improvised and the rolling of the dice, which is a feature of most role-playing games, generates random elements that engender further improvisation. And yet over many years, the mistake I have made is to seek too tightly to control the game. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I am prepared to admit that I've been a railroading GM more often than I realised. But let's not dive into self-recrimination. The point is this. To be play, our role-playing games need to be played for the sake of playing. They are first and foremost games to be enjoyed. We can diagnose our quality of play from other qualities we perceive. Is it voluntary? Do we play RPGs because we want to or because we feel we should? Because our friends expect us to GM is a good one. Or are the games inherently attractive to us as players? Do we enjoy role-playing as a format for play? Or would we rather do something else? Do we experience freedom from time, losing ourselves in the session? Or are we painfully aware of the clock ticking away? Does our role-playing contain improvisational potential? Are we making stuff up on the fly? And even within the bounds of the field of play established by the GM's offer, are we basically having to wing it? Do we experience that desire to continue to play again and again? Do we want to come back for another session next time? If we can answer yes to more of these questions, I believe we'll experience increasingly rich and varied play. The trick, of course, is to figure out how to let go enough to generate play. Once we accept that play is a thing done for its own sake, then we can immediately pay attention to the reasons why we want to play a particular game. While it might seem a little odd, there is a world of difference between I'm going to knock about with this combat system and I'm testing this combat system to see how it works. Begin with this. It's okay to simply try a new game out for fun. Been thinking about trying Dungeons & Dragons but don't know if you'll enjoy it? Getting into a game just to see how it feels is much more playful than turning up to analyse whether the rules are robust. This is what we did as kids. We tried stuff out. We improvised. We played around with games. One day we played some D&D, another day we mucked about with Traveller. When one of the group turned up with a new game, we gave it a shot. We played. The three big stumbling blocks for me as an anxious gamer are much more profound. First, I'm too self-conscious. Second, I'm too conscious of time. And third, I want to control the game too much. The most prevalent worry that arises when I think about play, even and especially if it's play I will be doing alone, is the sense that other people will disapprove. What will they think, whoever they are? Underneath the fear of judgment is the assumption that whatever people think matters in the first place. He is there, the disapproving parent who stalks my subconscious mind like a spectre. He stares at me from the shadows alongside the disappointed teacher and the outraged neighbour. Shadows from my past. Trauma personified. This fear arises from memory, from when I used to play alone in my bedroom and my parents would burst in to catch me playing. 
from when they would tell me I was playing silly games and how much better life would be if instead I would only work harder at school. The feeling I have in the moment is the fear of being caught. When I play with other people, this fear stalks before the session, especially if I'm meeting new players. What will people think? They'll think I'm crap at this, a bad player or a bad GM. Whenever I cut loose with my sense of humour, I worry that I'll offend someone at the table. Whenever I express an opinion about the rules or about the world, I fear that others will think of me as a whinging child. If I am GM, I predict that my ideas are weak and crappy, not worthy of my friends. The fears run deep and they take away my breath. What I feel is a doubt. It rises in my belly and reaches up through my chest to my shoulders. I get short of breath and my muscles tense. It's a creeping sense of uncertainty which arises each time I begin to engage with an idea for play. But the reality is that when I engage with play, these fears do fall away. Playing in recent games with friends in Horaeth, the open table game I hacked together using Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, I have repeatedly felt what Brown describes, the lost sense of the passage of time, diminished consciousness of self, absence of worry about whether I look good or awkward, smart or stupid, no thinking about the fact that I am thinking. I can even be a different self, fully in the moment, role-playing an NPC. This fear is the primary barrier I need to overcome. I cannot begin because I am too self-conscious to begin. Overcoming this fear has become the primary challenge I face as an anxious gamer, and the solution lies in the twin concepts of exploration and experimentation. Exploration is a key engagement for me as a player. Brown identifies eight play personalities, a rough taxonomy for the types of play people trend towards enjoying. And my strongest is the explorer. Quote, exploring can be physical, literally going to new places. Alternatively, it can be emotional, searching for a new feeling or deepening of the familiar through music, movement, flirtation. It can be mental, researching a new subject or discovering new experiences and points of view while remaining in your armchair, end quote. To engage my inner explorer, I have taken to asking myself what the prospective game has to offer in terms of discovery. My particular approach to role-playing games has always been oriented in this manner. I remember the sense of wonder evoked when playing Traveller for the first time or when opening the RuneQuest box set back in the 80s, it's therefore natural for me to reorientate myself towards exploration as an adult. To offset my other big fear, the fear of doing it wrong, I'm learning to combine exploration with experimentation. Chronologically, in my treatment of anxiety, it was experiments that came first, but the combination with exploration is truly where the power lies. Experiments begin with a hypothesis and propose a methodology to discover the truth, or otherwise, of that hypothesis. Inherent is the idea that experiments can fail and that experiments can be designed as needed. New hypotheses are formulated and the process provides a path towards knowledge. Quote, play provides freedom from time. When we are fully engaged in play, we lose a sense of the passage of time. End quote. This is the final element of fear in this property of play. I'm afraid of wasting my time. I feel the shortness of time ahead of me, the limitations upon it placed by responsibility. Tomorrow will be work and I don't want to lose my precious free time to something that feels wasted. 
play would free me from this worry but I can't permit myself to go there because inevitably I will run out of discretionary time. Here is the voice of the industrial age, the Protestant work ethic, the belief that the only things worth doing are worth doing well. The voice whispering, don't just sit there, do something. It's the shadow of childhood pressures from family and school. It's the voice that mutters about how much better my life would have been if I'd only knuckled down and worked harder on meaningful things. This is the biggest lie of all. Quote, as children, our reward for play is strong because we need it to help generate a rapidly developing brain. As adults, the brain is not developing as rapidly and the play drive may not be as strong, so we can do well enough without play in the short term. Our work or other responsibilities often demand that we set play aside. But when play is denied over the long term, our mood darkens. We lose our sense of optimism and we become anhedonic or incapable of feeling sustained pleasure end quote brown's analysis is that play is a biological imperative far from frivolously wasting time play deprivation is something akin to sleep deprivation without play we wither we solidify quote the opposite of play is not work the opposite of play is depression end quote the draw towards play is natural Humans who are deprived of play are drawn more strongly towards it. Denial of this drive is like denying food, water and sex. It's primal and basic to our human needs. In this sense, there is no wastage of time spent playing. In fact, our lives are enriched by the timelessness of play. As we dive into losing our self-consciousness, we also lose track of time. We are truly present in the moment, mindful only of the play. This is good mental health. This is freedom. Which brings me to control. I want to control the game too much. The need is to allow space for improvisation. This is the reason I have come to realise that role-playing games are really good for my mental well-being. Role-playing games, those that are actually fun to play, require improvisation and in-the-moment response. Because I worry it'll be a waste of time, I'm tempted to ratchet up the plan to create the most fun in the limited time I have. I work to prepare completely, to plan thoroughly, to give my players the best experience I can muster. This is a mistake. A game with no surprises is boring. Play requires some element of improvising a solution. The best games have multiple possible solutions and take a long time in play to master. Tic-tac-toe, what we Brits call noughts and crosses, is a short-lived pleasure because there are only so many ways to win. A 3x3 grid and two playing pieces, the cross and the circle, doesn't give challenge for long, and that's assuming you are turned on by challenge and the thrill of winning. It's no surprise to me that when I look at the original Dungeons & Dragons, the first published game in the genre, I see improvisation everywhere. The dungeon is a hastily drawn map, or at least Gygax's was. The dungeon has multiple, even endless, levels. Quote, In beginning a dungeon, it is advisable to construct at least three levels at once, noting where stairs, trapdoors and chimneys and slanting passages come out on lower levels, as well as the mouths of chutes and teleportation terminals. In doing the lowest level of such a set, it is also necessary to leave space for the various methods of egress to still lower levels. A good dungeon will have no less than a dozen levels down, with offshoot levels in addition and new levels under construction, so that players will never grow tired of it. 
There is no real limit to the number of levels, nor is there any restriction on their size other than the size of graph paper available. End quote. But the improvisational nature of play begins before the Dungeon Master ever invites another player into the game. Quote, the determination of just where monsters should be placed and whether or not they will be guarding treasure, and how much of the latter, if they are guarding something, can become burdensome when faced with several levels to do at one time. It's a good idea to thoughtfully place several of the most important treasures, with or without monstrous guardians, and then switch to a random determination for the balance of the level. End quote. Thus, we see the random placement of most of the monsters and treasures in those early dungeons. The game's referee plays before the main play begins, and when the game does begin, with the group assembled, we see improvisation everywhere. The player characters are initially generated from six random die rolls and a random amount of cash. Players must improvise a workable character from these elements. There are randomly determined wandering monsters within the dungeon, rolled every turn the players spend exploring. The traps are sprung on a random chance, usually a one or two on a six-sided die, when characters go near them. You will use random chance to determine if you hear a noise or find a secret door. And so it goes. Players and referee alike must improvise at the table in real time. I believe this was a big part of what made it exciting and fun. It was just about the least controlled role-playing environment imaginable. There were rules to give it shape and structure, but lots of room for surprises which forced everyone involved, especially the referee, to adapt and improvise. If I'm going to make my games more playful... I need to introduce tools that create surprise, as much for me as for the players. Trying to control the outcome to force a particular result stifles play. That's at the heart of why railroading, when the GM negates the player's choice in order to enforce a preconceived outcome, kills the enjoyment of a role-playing game. To quote the Alexandrian on GM Fiat, quote, The easiest ruling for a GM to make is no. When you use no, everything is simple. There are no complications, no consequences. It's clean, tidy, and definitive in its finality. That makes it an incredibly useful tool. It's also why you should basically never use it. What you actually want to do is almost the exact opposite. Default to yes. No inherently stagnates the action. It leaves the situation unchanged. Yes, on the other hand, implicitly moves the action forward. It creates a new situation to which both you and the players will now be forced to respond. End quote but it can be truly fun to respond to unexpected outcomes. And that's why Wandering Monsters, especially when designed with much more sophistication as unexpected encounters that can include non-monster challenges, why these were a big feature of my more playful youth. It's why mechanisms that make traps unpredictable are fun. The unexpected forces us, both player and GM, to adapt in real time. This helps us to lose track of the sense of time. The unexpected draws us in deeper and helps the game to flow. The challenge of remaining in role is complicated by the twists and turns of the emerging narrative. We are pushed deeper into the play of our role and we lose our sense of self. It becomes a melange of emotion and thought, challenge and interaction, exploring the situations and characters. We become immersed in the other world. At last, we are playing. Our role-playing games need to be played for the sake of playing. They are, first and foremost, games to be enjoyed. We can diagnose our quality of play from the other qualities we perceive. Is it voluntary? Do we play RPGs because we want to, or because we feel we should? Are the games inherently attractive to us as players? Do we enjoy role-playing as a format for play? Do we experience freedom from time, losing ourselves in a session? 
Is there a diminished consciousness of self if we instead become someone else, our role-played character or the NPC, or as we dive into the process of running the game for our friends? Does our role-playing contain improvisational potential? Are we making stuff up on the fly, even within the bounds of the field of play established by the GM's offer? Do we experience that desire to continue to play again and again? Do we want to come back for another session next time? All in all, circling back to the opening quotation from Brown's book, the science suggests that when we fail to find moments of play in our lives, we are setting ourselves up for a delve into depression. In response, I propose that simply engaging in some more playful role-playing, however small or brief, would be enormously energising and positive for our mental health. Thank you for listening. I hope that rant was useful. I'll see you again next time. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question or comment, then please hop over to speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue, where you can leave a 90-second message. That's speakpipe, S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash roleplayrescue. Alternatively, hop over to the blog at roleplayrescue.com and press the button on top right, which will take you right there. As ever, I'll stick the links in the show notes. Two calls today, feeding back on episodes in Season 10. Thank you to both callers for taking the time to share these reflections. Hey, Trey, Jason here. Really enjoyed your interview with um, Alexandrian, or Justin Alexander, I guess. So it was a good interview. I, I may not agree with him on everything, but I do think that was a useful interview. I think some really good points were made and a, and a compelling argument for the open table model. And recently over on my show, I've been talking about, or I and the callers getting a lot of calls about this, you know, why are fantasy games more popular than science fiction games? And I think the idea of open table, not everybody runs open tables, but I think it's a lot easier to do an open table game with a fantasy game you know, with your dungeon crawl or with whatever, than it is a sci-fi or a modern game. I'm not saying you couldn't do an open table with these other genres, but I do think that um, it's probably easier to do with a dungeon crawl or something of that nature. So my car's screwing up as I'm calling you. So I'm going to cut this off now. Take care. I'll talk to you later. Hey, Trey. It's Reed. I've been thinking a lot about playing the game that you want to play as opposed to what your players want to play. And I have a group right now. It's pretty irregular. We play one week we do Cyberpunk Red, another week I run Call of Duty 7th Edition. But I've just been dying to play um, a long-term Pathfinder or Pathfinder 2 campaign from Adventure Path. And... It's a struggle. I've been look, trying to find a group of people who are looking to play that level of crunch. And it's, I think that there's a lot of people online, but trying to find a game in person, a, a good crew of people who are all on the same wavelength is a lot harder. And I think this is why, you know, we as Dungeon Master struggle and we play the games and prep the games that we don't mind, but not, not our next, not necessarily enthused to want to play. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Talk to you later. Game on. There's obviously a balance to be had between the game we really want to play and the game that our players want to play. Because in the end, getting around a gaming table is always a 
blended entity is the phrase that I think is probably most useful. It's a sort of blend between what we want and what they want. And it's always something unique as well, especially if it's playful. I mean, the improvisational elements here are what's really important. That being said, I think the biggest mistake I made over the years is in always defaulting to what my players wanted to do. And I think more recently, as I've kind of clawed back ownership of my gaming table, which sounds horribly patriarchal in a way, but actually just by saying, look, honestly, I really want to play this thing. Can we give it a go? I've actually had a lot more fun doing that. And I think ultimately, if we're going to be playful at the gaming table, we've got to be honest with our players and maybe they're not the right players for us. Now, that might be more easy in this world of online play than it is you know, when we're meeting face-to-face. But still, if we're going to have a trusting, rich, playful gaming experience i think we've got to start with honesty and maybe if you sat down with those players it's not going to end up being pathfinder 2 with all the crunch but maybe it's going to be something nearer that for you in the end i think we've all got to make decisions together as a gaming group i think that the gm has to maintain a sense of yeah i'm happy to run that but i'm going to come back to a comment i made quite a while ago now And it really comes from Brian Jameson's book, Game Mastering. But it's to say that starting with which rule system you're going to play is probably a large part of the problem. What might be more fun is to talk about the kind of game you want to play, the kind of experience you want to have, what the outcome is going to feel like, how long you want to play for, what kind of a world or universe you want to play in. Construct all of that. And then as GM sit down and think, which set of rules would help me deliver it the best? Thanks to Jason and Jason for calling in. See you next time. Big thank you once again for showing up and listening. Massive thank you to John from Tale of the Manticore, the creator of the Roleplay Rescue theme music and stingers. John's own podcast is a real treat, and I suggest you go listen to it if you're not already. Thank you, John. Thanks also to all the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Your generosity helps to cover the incidental cost for what is, after all, an amateur podcast. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next time. Game on.